Let's exercise our trust in the Lord by opening our Bibles to John 10 and considering his truth from this text, believing it is from him, trusting that even this moment he will speak to our hearts from his word for the maturity of our faith and the strength of our soul. In the life of a preacher, there's texts and times that are especially timely, appointed by the providence of God. I find myself in such a position this morning in which I think I need this sermon more than anyone else in the room. I found myself this past week struggling in an especially intense way with self-love. The pressures of life and the weight of responsibility, the difficulty of just being alive made getting out of bed in the morning uniquely tough to face yet another day. One particular morning I found myself in my spirit bemoaning the fact that I had more to do on that day than I wanted to do. I know none of you struggle with this, but I happened to this past week. I wrestled through that whole day with longings for time for me, despair, discouragement, depression of soul, lack of motivation. I didn't want to do anything that I knew God had for me to do. Basic stuff, like love my wife and my kids. I was struggling in my soul to do something so basic that gives so much joy to my life. I knew something was seriously wrong with my heart. Woke up the very next morning and had to wrestle through that yet again. And in God's kindness, he confronted me with what the problem was. For the whole day before, I had wrestled with all the stuff, all the responsibilities, all the difficulty, all the everyone has them. This is not a sympathy thing for Matt. You have these two in different ways. The Lord confronted me with, the problem is, is you. you. You love you. You want to roll over and pull the covers back over and not face the day because you want to love you. What's the, what's the biblical prescription for that illness? What's the pharmacist of heaven say to that sick soul? Well, in part, we come to a text that has the answer. And the answer is the cross of Christ. You see, you simply cannot love yourself when you're gazing upon the sacrificial love of Jesus hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying for you. The love of Christ as our good shepherd is indeed the sharpest dagger to place on the throat of self-love. It will kill it immediately. May God help us this morning from John 10 to see the glory of our good shepherd so that we are filled with faith and love for him. One of my lifelines in my own journey of faith 
has been reading Christian biographies, and specifically those of, of missionaries and of pastors, because I, I see many things in them that are encouraging to me. I see the struggles that I face that are not new. Nothing's new under the sun. I see examples in them of, of faithfulness and of joy in the Lord that I'm striving to attain. One of the most recent ones that I've been reading is a bio of Robert Murray McShane. He's a uh, 18th century pastor in Scotland, particularly in Dundee, Scotland. And his life and ministry were cut short by disease that took his life at the age of 29. He only ministered in the church for seven and a half years, most of those being in the town of Dundee, Scotland, on the eastern side of Scotland. Andrew Bonar, his good friend, wrote the biography that I'm currently reading, and he expressed in there the, the large impact that Robert Murray McShane had upon Scotland in his short life and in his short ministry. God used him powerfully and magnificently to, to reach and to reverberate throughout the whole land. Robert was raised in a Christian home. He heard the gospel early on. He knew the tenets of the faith. He could spout good doctrine. He understood what truth was. He knew what it meant to know the gospel. But he did not know Christ. As he came into the later part of his teenage years, he wrestled with God, knowing the truth but not knowing Christ, knowing his own sinfulness but not knowing the answer. Knowing good doctrine, but not knowing the God of that doctrine. Knowing a mind that understood truth, but a heart that was dead toward God. As he wrestled with God, he was awakened in his soul by the grace and mercy of the Lord, and he was stirred to repentance and faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he committed himself then to preach Christ. Andrew Bonar, who wrote this bio, says, he describes his ministry this way, there's a wide difference between preaching doctrine and preaching Christ. Mr. McShane preached all the doctrines of Scripture as understood by our confession of faith, dwelling upon ruin by the fall and recovery by the mediator. From personal experience of deep temptation, he could lay open the secrets of the heart so that he once said he supposed the reason why some of the worst sinners of Dundee had come to hear him was because his heart exhibited so much likeness to theirs. Still, it was not doctrine alone that he preached. It was Christ from whom all doctrine shoots forth as rays from a center. He sought to hang every vessel and flagon upon him. He wrote, Mary McShane wrote after preaching Revelation 1, verse 15, it is strange how sweet and precious it is to preach directly about Christ compared with all other subjects of preaching. It was this powerful preaching of Christ that propelled a great awakening in the town of Dundee. McShane knew that sinners, lost sinners, need Christ. He knew that saved sinners need Christ. He knew that the unregenerate need Christ. He knew that the regenerate need more of Christ. He knew that the world needs Christ. He knew that the church needs Christ. He knew that the happiest of Christians need Christ. He knew that the, the saddest and most discouraged of Christians need more of Christ. I agree with Robert Murray McShane. It is a strange sweetness which comes to my soul to preach a text that speaks directly about Christ. One in which from A to Z it gets to be all about him. 
There's a unique joy and privilege that comes to this sacred desk in this sacred moment to say, we preach Christ. It's been a joy to walk through the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John, we have seen great doctrine, have we not? We've seen deep and mysterious things of God laid before us by our Savior. We've understood, at least in part, the the doctrine of regeneration, the the doctrine of the fallenness of men and the the nature of unbelief in a a sinful human heart. We've seen powerful statements of of our Lord that he is the only true source of of spiritual water and life, that he's the bread of heaven. If you want to know spiritual satisfaction, you must know him. We've seen right away in John 1, he's the the co-existent, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father one who came and dwelt among us. We've seen glorious and eternally powerful statements of truth and of doctrine. But these have not formed a, a bullet point list by which we go down our list saying this is true and this is true and this is true and this is true. No, we have seen Christ himself. John is laying before you a person and his work. For you must know him. He is the center from which all these rays of doctrine shoot. And so this morning we fix our eyes once again upon him. And we see the matchless glory of Christ made known through him as our good shepherd. We see this in John 10 starting in verse 1, where he says to the crowds, namely to the Pharisees, who think they are spiritual blinds and are spiritual guides to the blind, but they are themselves blind. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
This is the holy, inspired, inerrant word of our Lord. May we receive it by faith. Jesus speaks these words of clarity to make known the absolute truth because there's confusion. These Pharisees think that they are the shepherds of Israel. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of a day similar to this in Ezekiel 34 where he bemoans, my prophets take the sheep and they use them to their own ends. They don't feed the sheep. They use the sheep to feed themselves. Where are the shepherds? And then Jehovah Yahweh says, I myself will be a shepherd to the sheep. That is in the background to John 10 where Jesus now says, I am that shepherd of Ezekiel 34 in the flesh before you. You Pharisees have thought you shepherded God's people. You have failed. You are thieves and robbers. You have climbed in by another way. I am the good shepherd as opposed to you. He's boldly declaring what is true about them and true about him. But not only is he confronting their false assumptions of their own authority over God's people, he also is speaking words of comfort to this young faith of this man who is healed in chapter 9. And like him, we, we sit under the words of Christ and we, we grab from him the truths that feed our soul. Truths about Jesus that we stake our lives upon. Not just this life, but the life to come. If these things are not true, we are of all people most to be pitied. Go home, live for the day, and eat, drink, and be merry. It doesn't matter if these are not true. Blessed be God, they are true. Christ is our good shepherd. We saw that he is our good shepherd last week in the sense that he lays down his life for the sheep. He says that three different times in this text, making known to us very clearly that he is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. He gets between them and the threat, between them and death. He takes their condemnation for them and so they can be his sheep and he can be their shepherd because he gives his life for them. That's a sacrificial love of the good shepherd. We also saw that he's the good shepherd of the sheep and that he has a secure knowledge of the sheep. He knows them and they know him. He knows them by name. He he calls each of them by name. And he leads them out of the fold and they follow him and they won't follow any other. They will only follow him. And he leads them all out. They all are with him. He doesn't leave any behind. He has a secure, unending, undeniable knowledge of his sheep and they of him. In fact, it's such a true and deep knowledge that he says it's just like my knowledge of the Father and the Father's knowledge of me. Pulling back a, a curtain of mysterious glory and letting us have a peek at how our knowledge of Christ and his of us is like the knowledge shared between father and son. This is the secure knowledge of the good shepherd. In my Sunday afternoon and Monday morning ruminations of last week's sermon, like a a cow chewing cud, I brought it back up and chewed over everything I said again, as is often the case. So you can pray for me. You have to listen to it once. I have to listen to it multiple times. That's really awful. One of the questions I realized I never answered for you last week that I posed to you, which is like Preacher 101, don't do this. But I did this. I I posed a question and I left it and never answered it. And I asked you at the end of verse 15, why does Jesus say again, and I lay down my life for the sheep? 
He, he says, I, I know my sheep, my own know me, and that knowledge is just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And then he says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Why does he say that? Why is that important to his secure knowledge of the sheep and the sheep's secure knowledge of him? Well, two, a two-pronged answer quickly, and then we need to move to verses 16 through 18. But a two-pronged answer is that because it's by his true knowledge that he was compelled to come and give his life for the sheep. It's because he knew us before the foundation of the world that he was compelled to, to come and lay down his life for us. So it's the basis of, of his coming, this secure knowledge. And he lets us know that by linking them together at the end of verse 15. But the second reason is because he puts himself out there as a sacrifice of, uh, for the sheep so that we can have knowledge of him and him of us. He becomes the linchpin of that knowledge. So that knowledge compels him to come and give his life, and, and then our knowledge is rooted in and hinges upon his sacrifice for us. In other words, you can't be his sheep if he does not give himself for you. He cannot be your shepherd if he does not sacrifice himself on your behalf. Now you can know him because he shed his blood for you, and he can know you so truly, like he says in 14 and 15, because he has given his life for you. There's more about the good shepherd in this text, and it is, in verse 16, the settled unity brought by the good shepherd. Verses 17 and 18, the sovereign authority of the good shepherd. Consider first with me the settled unity brought by the good shepherd in verse 16. Jesus declares, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I, I must bring them also, he says, and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. He ends his statement with the glorious promise of indestructible, unending, sure unity between sheep and shepherd. And not just any kind of sheep, but sheep from all kinds of different folds, united underneath the authority and the care of one shepherd. We learned last week in our study of verses 11 through 16 that there was a, a sheep fold that was analogous to the national Israel, that the sheepfold Jesus is referring to is the, the community of Israel. He's using a, a metaphor from common Jewish life in which they would have a, a sheepfold outside, a, a walled-in area just outside of a small village or town. Shepherds would take their flocks out into the hills to graze. They'd be walking and wandering all day. They would return to the sheepfold. They would put their sheep in, check each one as they pass through the door, make sure there's no injury or harm to them no sickness or illness threatening their life, let them go into the sheepfold, and then they would pay a gatekeeper to watch the sheepfold. And there would be four or five families who would share the sheepfold, and they would all have their flocks cared for and protected in this walled-in area outside of the city until the next morning when the shepherd would return, the gatekeeper would let them in the door because he knows them, and he knows they own sheep in the sheepfold. He would enter in, he would call each of his sheep by name, he would give his unique whistle by which his sheep would know it's him, it's their shepherd, and they would walk out of the gate and he would inspect them once again, one by one as they exited, and he would lead them out into abundant pasture. This is the analogy, the word metaphor our Lord is using to say, I, the true shepherd, came in by the right way. The sheepfold he's talking about is obviously national Israel, ethnic Israel, those who are sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham. 
He says to them, I entered in the right way and that I was also born as a son of Abraham and more than that, I was born as a son of David. More than that, I was born under the law of Moses. More than that, I was born by a virgin under supernatural superintendence by Almighty God. And I came in the right way as the perfect son to fulfill the law. I told you last week that the the walls of the sheepfold are like what Paul equates the law in Galatians 3 to. He says of it there like it's a school teacher or a guardian that keeps the children of Israel safe until the coming of Christ, by which then they will be justified by faith in him, Galatians 3. That's after the early part of Galatians 3 where he is said by Paul to have been born of a woman born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. So Jesus of Nazareth entered into the fold the right way, with the right credentials, with the right birth line, with the right righteousness of life, with perfect obedience, to lead Israel out of the fold that had kept them safe and into the pastures of abundant life, namely the abundant life of the forgiveness of their sins, the full forgiveness of their sins through the sacrifice of himself. So that they would no longer have to bring their sacrifice to the temple repeatedly offering up for their sins and offering of atonement. But so that this good shepherd would lay down his life as their high priest offering himself once for all for the remission of their sins for all. And he adds in our verse, in verse 16, he says that there are not just sheep of Israel that I'm leading out, but there are sheep who are not of this fold. Meaning there are sheep who are outside of national Israel that I, am, I also am bringing into my fold, into my herd, my flock, Obviously speaking of his global reach, of his saving power, all throughout the scriptures, prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, in texts like Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, where Yahweh promises that he's going to send a a servant, his chosen servant, the Messiah. And he says, my Messiah will be a light for the nations outside of Israel, the nations, to, listen, open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners out from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is what John the Baptist, the forerunner, came declaring of Jesus in John 1. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of Israel. No, of the world. This is the global perspective of a God of all grace who's come to rescue and save lost sinners from many folds. This is why John the Apostle told us in chapter 1 and verse 12 that Jesus came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. And then he goes on to say, but to those who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It was not whether or not you're a child of Abraham now. It's whether you believed in this son of Abraham who is now your savior to determine whether you are a child of the king or not. He came to call his sheep from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. Did you notice that he also said that he must, must bring them also in the sec- that second phrase, he must bring them? That's that wonderful little Greek word I've told you about before, de, D-E-I. 
It's the word that is the divine necessity. There's no other way. It must be this way. It's the the same word that Jesus used in John 3 when he said to Nicodemus, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you must, that's our word, you must be born again. There's no other way into the kingdom. You must be born again. It's the word Jesus used in John 3 and verse 14 where he says the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So no one can believe in him and have eternal life unless he is lifted up, speaking of the cross. It's the divine necessity of the Apostle John and the work of Christ. It's the word John the Baptist uses in chapter 3 and verse 30 when he says Jesus must increase but I must decrease. There's no option here, John the Baptist says. He must go up, I must go down. He must be elevated, I must be demoted. He must be exalted, I must be his worshiper. It's a word used by, of Jesus in John 4 to say that he must go through Samaria, or as the King James beautifully says, he, he must needs go through Samaria. He had a divine appointment from the Father in that land with the woman at the well and her townspeople who had come to faith in him. And in fact, think with me now, isn't John 4 exhibit A of John 10? Isn't John 4 the the case in point of, of what Jesus is saying in John 10, that I have many sheep of other folds? You could hardly find a more different fold than the Samaritans, a more despised fold than the Samaritans, a more hated fold than the Samaritans. And Jesus has already done a work of grace when he speaks this in John 10 to extend forgiveness to them, to turn their hearts to worship him, the one and only true God. Can we take that to the bank and say if if that's what he did even before he went to the cross, won't that be most certainly what he will do in extension and infinitum after the cross? Won't this explode beyond Israel to the far reaches of the planet? And isn't that what the 2,000-year history of the church has been? Can I remind you, Newton is not that close to Jerusalem? You are the far reaches of the planet. You are the distant shores from the chosen people of God. You know the grace of God today because this is true. You've been brought into the kingdom of God today because the good shepherd said, I have other sheep from other folds and they must be brought in. I must bring them. They will hear my voice and they will come. Look at John 11, verses 50 and 52 quickly with me. We'll come to this here in a few weeks, but the controversy over Jesus is at a fever pitch after he raised Lazarus from the dead in the earlier part of chapter 11. Some of the Pharisees in their fevered pitch about this are convinced that everyone's going to go away believing in Jesus and worse than that, then the Romans are going to come and take away their land and their power. Caiaphas responds, the high priest that year says in verse 50 of John 11, I'll start reading verse 59, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die 
for the nation. If Jesus can speak through the mouth of a donkey and Balaam's donkey, he certainly can speak through the mouth of an unbelieving high priest. He does here. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Here is the promise of John 10, carried through into John 11, and an editorial note by John the Apostle making known to us that Jesus, our good shepherd, is bringing to himself one flock from many folds, of which he will be one shepherd over them, carrying for them. This is indeed the, the unity that our Lord prays for in John 17 on the evening before his crucifixion. He says in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You know, it's at the center of Christian unity. You know what pulls all of the the sheep of God's flock together into one place underneath one shepherd? Christ. It is Christ. He is the nucleus around which we orbit. It is his very life. It is all of his truth. It is the extension of his grace. And it is to the the level of which we are near Christ, that we are near each other. Why is there so much disunity in the church, in the world today? Because we're not as close to Christ as we ought be. We're not as near the shepherd under his care, growing in his maturity, clinging to his truth, walking in his grace. The more true that is in any given local body, the more we experience the unity promised in John 10. Which ultimately, you know, looks forward to a coming day when, when the presence of our shepherd and the, the glorification of our bodies is united with our redeemed souls and we exist forever under the sovereign rule, the obvious presence of our King for all time. And of all the glories of eternal heaven, one of the greatest will be unending Unity. Oneness with God and with each other. It is mind-blowing and it is faith-inspiring. So in all the skirmishes of, of Christian life in this age, in your home and in your church, fix your eyes on a, on a coming day when all that goes away underneath the present and powerful care of our one shepherd. And fixing your eye on that coming day, I am confident the Lord will purify you in the present day so that you are more able by his grace to add to unity rather than to detract from it. This is the sure unity brought by the good shepherd. Consider next the sovereign authority of the good shepherd, the sovereign authority, verses 17 and 18. 
Jesus plainly tells the Pharisees that he alone has sovereign authority over his own life. Friend, you cannot say this. There's not been another human from Adam and Eve to you who could say this. Jesus of Nazareth is alone, the one human who has ever breathed our air and lived in our world who could say what he says in verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. By the power of his own will, he says, I have the authority to give my life and to take back my life. He says, I've come with this authority by the command of the Father, meaning, as he has said often throughout John's Gospel, I have been sent by the Father for this very thing. I have been given this mission. I've come as the incarnate Son to take away the sin of the world through the sacrifice of myself, he says. This is why I'm here. I've, I've come on command of the Father, and, and I have the authority to do that, authority over, my ti- over the timing of my death and over my own resurrection, Jesus says. We've seen this rising tension in John's gospel over the death of Jesus, haven't we? Others wanting to take his life and him saying you can't, essentially. It's, it's been throughout John's gospel. So we've, we've seen the Pharisees, they, they plot to kill Jesus over and over again and are never successful. So in John 7, 1, we're told that Jesus would not go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. A few verses later, in 18 to 19, Jesus confronts the crowd and says, you are seeking to kill me. Chapter 7, verse 30, we're told that they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because why? His hour had not yet come. They weren't given freedom by a sovereign Lord to do that. Then in 744, some people wanted to arrest him because they thought he was a liar and a blasphemer, but again, no one laid their hands on him. Chapter 8 and verse 37, Jesus says that they are, are seeking to kill me because my word finds no place in them. And then that bubbles up toward the end of chapter 8 to the point where they pick up stones in the temple complex to bash his head in. And I keep saying that to you to, to make it graphic on purpose. They wanted him dead immediately. They were ready to take his life in that moment. But John calmly says in verse 59, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It can't happen. They don't have the authority to take his life until he gives himself to them. This will increase and rise until that final Passover, starting in chapter 11, bleeding over into chapter 12. Remember in, in chapter 11, they hear of Lazarus getting sick and dying. They're in Perea, they're miles away from Judea. And Jesus says, Lazarus has died. Lazarus is asleep, he says. Let's go, we're going to Judea. You remember what the disciples say to him in, in their protest? They want to kill you there. Why do you want to go there? He basically says, don't worry about it. They don't have any power over me to kill me. Let's go. So Thomas finally says, you know what? If he's going to go die, we might as well go die with him. Right? They can't do anything to him until his appointed hour. Indeed, Jesus was murdered by the wicked and unbelieving 
Jews. He was put on trial under a mockery of justice. Six appearances before a court system that was not following its own rules, had a predetermined verdict to hang him on a cross. He was condemned to die by a waffling Roman prefectorate. He was nailed to a Roman cross by Roman soldiers. He was publicly mocked and shamed through crucifixion. I don't want you to think that Jesus killed himself. He did not. But they had no authority over him until he laid down his life. No man, he says, can take it from me. This is exactly what he says to Pontius Pilate in chapter 19. Pilate exasperated with the whole situation of the trials and the pressure and wanting to appease the Pharisees but also release Jesus because he knows Jesus is not guilty. Everyone knows Jesus is not guilty. He's trying to get rid of this stain from him but also resist the pressure, find a release valve somehow. And he finally asked Jesus, the, the Pharisees said, you must kill him because he blasphemes by saying he is a son of God. Pilate said, wait a second, I haven't heard that yet. Pulls Jesus aside and says, what are you, where are you from? What are you talking about? Son of God, and Jesus does not answer. You remember what Pilate says? Basically, do you know who I am? Do you know I have the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? Remember what Jesus says? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus has sole sovereign authority over his life to lay it down and to take it up again. Let's consider that second part of it, to take it up again. He's obviously speaking of his own resurrection from the dead. He, he really and truly gave his life in death under the punishment of our sins. He sacrificed completely himself for the cleansing of our own forgiveness but he, through that death, conquered death itself, right? Isn't that what the, the teaching of 1 Corinthians 15? The grave could no longer hold him. Being God in the flesh, conquering sin and death and hell through his substitutionary sacrificial death on our behalf, the grave had no power over him and it could not keep him. He had authority on that third day to enter that lifeless tomb to bring his dead body back to glorified life to resurrect it, and to display in physical reality all that was spiritually true. That death could not contain our Lord. He had already said this was going to happen in John chapter 2 when he said to the people on the temple complex, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he was speaking of Herod's temple that had taken 47 years to build. He said, no, later, this, I'm speaking of my body. John adds an editorial comment, and he says in John 2, when the disciples saw the resurrected Lord, they remembered these words, and they believed the scripture and the words of Christ. Because he has authority to take his life back. Beloved, he cannot be your good shepherd unless this is true. A dead shepherd is not a good shepherd. He could protect you from one thing, but as soon as he dies by that one thing, he cannot protect you from any other thing. He, through his sacrifice of himself, laying down his life and bringing himself back from the dead, shows you that he can be your good shepherd. The abundant life he promises you is an abundant life he actually can give you. 
for he has been raised to that very abundant life himself by his own power. Friend, your days are numbered. Your, your breaths are being counted down till your final one. You have no authority over the, the last one you'll take. Beyond that, you have no authority to give it back to yourself after you take that last one. This is the agony of standing at a graveside of a loved one or a friend. In our humanity, there is a finality in that moment that is overwhelming and overpowering. Brings such tremendous grief that we sob and we ache. We're full of constant pain in our grief because death seems to have won. And there's nothing we can do. While they're still alive, we can take them to the best of doctors and give them the best of medicines. While they're still alive, there's words of comfort and encouragement we can speak of. When they're in the grave, it is, from human perspective, over. Jesus changes all of that as the good shepherd. No man takes my life from me I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again, Jesus says. And lastly, consider this. It's because of this work of the Son that the Father loves the Son. He says that in verse 17, that because he has the authority to lay down his life and does it, and has authority to take up his life again, that the Father loves the Son. There's huge mystery here. It's like what we found in verses 14 and 15. We're, we're treading where angels dare not walk. But Jesus said it, so there's something here he wants us to grasp. He pulls back the veil of mystery a little bit between us and the glories of our triune God, and he, he shows us a little bit more about the astounding relationship between divine Father and divine Son, heavenly Father and earthly Son, incarnate Son. Now, before I say anything else, you must know and you do know there's a settled unity and a perfect and infinite shared love between Father, Son, and Spirit. It's unchanging. It's immutable. It is the defining aspect of their very relationship before the creation and the foundation of the world. It's permanent. This breaks through into our Lord's experience in his incarnation as he, at his baptism, the the clouds are parted and the voice of the Father comes out and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John 3 and John 5, Jesus says that the Father loves him. John 17, he will pray and say that the Father has loved me since before the foundation of the world. It's a shared love that's obvious and, and clear between Father and Son, but there's something more here Jesus says, it's because I lay down my life for the sheep that the Father loves me. There's something about the obedience of the Son to the point of death on the cross that provokes love between Father and Son. This work of of unparalleled and unmatched sacrifice by which the love of God is preeminently shown in the world provokes more love between 
father and son. I don't even know if I can say that. Can, can there be more love between father and son? I don't know. But what else does this mean that the father loves the son because this happens? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. The father loves the son because he gave himself for the world. This means that this work of sacrificial love by our Savior shows the loveliness and the loveworthiness of Jesus. The sacrificial work of Jesus shows the loveliness and the loveworthiness of Jesus. And if that is true in some mysterious way between father and son, I ask you, friend, should that not be all the more true of us, his sheep? Does this not teach us then that the key to our love for Christ is actually his love for us, made known to us through Christ, his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection? You see, we never move past the cross work of Christ. Your maturity in Christ, your love for God is, is only deepened as you go further into the cross work of Christ. This was the, the heavenly prescription of the divine pharmacist for my soul as I wrestled with a simple thing like getting out of bed and obeying what I knew I needed to do. Because I wanted to love me instead of others. I wanted to roll back over and take the morning, shoot the whole day off, and forget it all. I knew that was sinful. I knew I wasn't going to do it, but I knew I was wrestling. You know what I needed in that moment? I needed to see the cross of Christ. And indeed, as I wrestled with the Lord on that morning, I was confronted with the cross of Christ. As I read his word, I was confronted with the sacrificial love he displayed for me. And it was a sharp arrow that pierced into the heart of my pride and killed it on the spot. It proved to be the kryptonite to my superman of self, crippled before its presence, unable to move because Christ gave himself for me. Lest you think this is me making this up, I want you to turn with me to, to what John does with this in 1 John 4 as we finish today. 1 John 4 lest you think I'm just pontificating about the crosswork of Jesus and applying it to your life in a way that sounds good but isn't actually real. I want you to see it in the word of God. This is exactly what the apostle John does in applying the crosswork of Christ to our lives. John chapter four, verse seven, he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. But whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love 
is perfected in us. The application is obviously clear. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. Because God is love and he's shown you the way to love by sending his son for you. And in that you know how to love and you, if you love God, should love like that. But I want to back the train up a little bit and see the logic in John's point in John, 1 John 4. He can say that. He can tell you to love others rooted in the love of Christ because he has thought through the logic of love of God for us. So he says in 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. The key to your living in a way that honors and glorifies this Savior. The key to your living in this abundant life in which he leads you which will look like loving others instead of rolling over in bed and wasting your day. The key is not some me time. The key is not to give in to the flesh. The the works of the flesh never produce righteousness. The key is not to to find some release valve of of the pressures of your life to, to get out from under it for a while. The key is the love of God shown to you most clearly in the work of Christ. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your only reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So you may test and prove what the will of God is, that which is perfect and good and acceptable. May it be true of us this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you deserve all of our praise. For you are good beyond measure. We praise you for Christ and for his work on our behalf. We ask that you deepen us in his work. Take us more fully into the crosswork of your son and show us the glories and the majesty of your grace that we might live this abundant life you've called us to live and love with the same love we've been shown. I pray for those among us who don't yet know this love, who are still outside of the care of the shepherd. Father, I beg of you that today would be the day of their salvation, of their being brought by your grace into your fold. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen.